Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal is to find uh, exceptional people around the world, clinicians, professionals, scientists, doctors, etc. Interview them and you know get information for you, the listener, that you might not otherwise find by Googling around. So today I have uh, Henrik Munch-Roger. Uh, he's an assistant professor at University of Copenhagen in Denmark. We're going to be talking about the gut microbiota and nutrition and how it affects your microbiome. So, Henrik, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah. How did you get interested in the, uh, the microbiome? Well, I think actually it started like 10 years ago. Um, I was at that time studying uh, biotechnology, and I had a major interest in microbiology. And by coincidence, I ended up doing a project uh, concerning a protein that you find in breast milk where we were investigating whether this uh, protein could affect the growth of bacteria that were isolated from the infant gut. And, um, and that was 10 years ago. And, and since then, uh, basically the research field just exploded. And I also got more and more fascinated uh, by basically combining their fields of nutrition and then uh, their field of their gut microbiota and health. I think it's a very exciting field uh, to work in. So what's, um, what aspects of nutrition are you seeing? How nutrition changes the composition of the gut? Or are you looking at the metabolomics or the metagenomics of the species in the gut? Like how have you targeted it specifically? Yeah, yeah so, so basically, um, yeah, so my main research area is to try to understand how our diet affects our gut microbes. And most people have been doing that by looking at which bacteria are present in the gut and how do they respond uh, to a certain dietary intervention. Uh, So my take on this is to try to move beyond studying the composition of the bacteria to rather study the activity of the bacteria. Uh, So basically I'm interested in mapping out the small molecules that the gut microbes produce in our gut. Uh, so these molecules, we also call them metabolites. And uh, we measure the metabolites by um, metabolomics. So basically, uh, using mass, mass spectrometry, we can really accurately measure the weight of each, each molecule. And then we can um, basically determine which molecules do we find in the gut. And I think that's, I think that's very interesting because... Um, in order to move the whole research field a step forward, we need to understand um, what the microbes are doing in terms of activity. And these small molecules could uh, basically work as small signaling molecules that can activate uh, our cells in the gut, but also throughout the whole body and, and thereby affect our metabolism and, and eventually our health. What's your model? Are you looking at uh, human gut changes or mouse model or where? Uh, so I've been involved in 
in different kinds of work, but, but mainly it's uh, based on human intervention studies and also cohort studies. Um, so when, when we do human interventions, um, some people, of course, map out which microbes do we have in the gut, and then often it has been my task to then try to measure the small molecules in, in stool samples, in blood samples, in urine samples, and then to see whether we can see any patterns that change after the intervention. Well, what kind of interventions have you studied and what have you seen? Uh, so, for example, uh, we, we've studied uh, the effect of a, a whole grain diet compared to a refined grain diet in, in Danish adults. And um, what we found here was that there, despite that, that we significantly increased the total amount of whole grain in, their, in the diet, we, we didn't see a big change in terms of the composition of the microbes. Um, and also when we studied the, activity, the changes in the activity in terms of metabolites, we didn't see huge changes. And I think the main reason for this, which was a surprise to us, was probably that here in Denmark, uh, there people are actually already consuming quite a lot of whole grain. So I think we uh, were challenged by the fact that, that people already had a high habitual intake of whole grain and therefore we could not really uh, push uh, the gut microbiota to a new extent. I mean, we could not, um, it didn't have a, a big effect in this population. I guess it would have been different if we had studied another uh, group of people. Um, so that's well, one example. study people with, uh, with dysbiosis or with other medical conditions and maybe look for like the extremes, you know, why don't look at people with Alzheimer's or irritable yeah, bowel and compare their metabolites. Yeah, I mean, in, in, this, uh, in this study, it was um, overweight, but otherwise pretty healthy Danish adults. And I think their, the reason for that was that originally uh, their, the, the money was granted to the project uh, to, to also investigate whether there are any health effects associated with a whole grain diet. Because one of their dietary recommendations in Denmark is that you should choose whole grains. So basically... Um, their uh, funding agency wanted to investigate whether the, whether this uh, dietary guidelines could be substantiated with uh, evidence. And, and yes, and we, indeed, we found that although it didn't change the gut microbiota composition, we could see that um, people lost, uh, lost weight, body weight, uh, and furthermore, there are inflammatory markers in the and the systemic uh, circulation was significantly lowered uh, after the whole grain diet. So there was definitely an ef a beneficial effect of eating whole grains compared to refined grains, uh, but we could not prove that that was due to a, a change in the gut microbiota composition. Well, I thought you weren't looking for change in the composition. You were looking for change in the uh, predominant metabolites. Yes. Did you look there? And then what, did you, what was the change that you saw there? Yeah, so, so we also looked at um, so these short-chain fatty acids, which are microbial molecules um, resulting from fermentation of their dietary fibers. Uh, we did see a trend towards an increase in these short-chain fatty acids after the whole grain intervention. Uh, so that suggests uh, that there are uh, an effect on activity level, but it was not substantial uh, compared to the, I mean, the 
if you think about their large amount of whole grain they consumed, it didn't really uh, differ a lot in terms of short chain fatty acid production. Um, and then we also measured other molecules uh, in, in urine, for example, where we could see that uh, other, um, for example, there is a, a molecule called interlactone, which is coming from another polysaccharide called uh, lignin, which is also a kind of coming from uh, whole grains and also uh, vegetables. And we could see that increase with the increased whole grain intake. So there were some changes, but it's always challenging when you do human interventions then to, you, you cannot really claim causality and the, the causalities who could not exactly pinpoint their mechanisms that were uh, behind their reduced uh, inflammation level in the blood, for example. So uh, was there new ones that you didn't see before? Was there, a, you know, so was there just more short-chain fatty acids? And of them, you know, I don't know how many short-chain fatty acids there are, but was there a composition change? Was there just more of all of them? Was there new ones that were present? Uh, you know, so we when, look deeply into it. Yeah, so so when it comes to short-chain fatty acids, we, we investigated their common ones. So that's butyrate, acetate, propionate, uh, isobutyrate, isovalerate, and valerate. And... Uh, as far as a recall is some years ago, uh, we did see an effect on uh, butyrate um, or tendency for an effect, depending on what kind of statistics you did. Um, but besides that, we didn't go deeper into that because we had very limited effect uh, overall in terms of microbiome. But despite that, we, we did see beneficial effects on body weight and inflammation, as I just talked about before. But that's just one, one example of, of a study. Um, more recently, uh, we finished a uh, Mediterranean um, diet intervention in collaboration with scientists from France and Italy. Uh, and, and here we had a much more comprehensive approach to map out their metabolites in the stool, in urine, in, 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 the, in the blood. And here we could see that after uh, overweight Italians had switched from uh, a more like unhealthy uh, dietary pattern to their Mediterranean dietary pattern, we could see that uh, several uh, metabolites uh, were changing. So we could see, of course, that metabolites from uh, fruits and vegetables, nuts were increased at the expense of, um, for example, metabolites coming from meat were going down. So basically, all the dietary changes were reflected in the urine and in, in the blood. And some of these metabolites could, be, could have bioactive uh, functions. Um, so I think from that study, it's, it's really clear that uh, when you change your diet, you also basically change their, the, the small molecules that are circulated uh, in the body. And I think that's very interesting if you think about um, well, basically, our diet as a kind of our daily medicine um, in terms of that when we eat food, basically that's converted into a lot of small molecules that could have uh, physiological effects uh, throughout the whole body. So, well, all right, what um, if there's not a change in the bacterial composition, but there is a change in you know the metabolites? Do you theorize that maybe the bacteria that are within the gut can change function 
I mean, tremendously. Can they produce uh, substances they didn't produce before? You know, instead of just producing more of them, or you know, is yeah. it uh, <clears throat> is I, I that how it, the composition can stay the chain the same, but the, the bacteria again can can have different jobs or create very different molecules? I I think there are, we we can think of their their gut microbiota as a complex biofactory. Uh, I mean. It, depending on what kind of substrates we feed them, we will also have different end products. So if you uh, feed your microbes dietary fiber, that will give you different molecules than compared to if you only uh, feed them meat. So definitely there's a clear relationship on um, what kind of substrates that goes in and what comes out of it. Uh, having said that, I also think it's, it's, um, it's probably more complex than we think. I mean, just think about how um, pH might vary from one person to another person and, and in the gut. And we know that uh, pH is uh, regulating enzyme activities. Uh, so that means that despite uh, we might share a certain bacteria in our gut, if we have different conditions, let's say environmental conditions, uh, that could heavily affect whether these enzymes are actually active and to what extent they work. Um, so I think uh, this, it's not only about which microbes are there, it's, it's also about what we feed them and what are the conditions in the gut. Right, I would think that you know, the microbes are mutualistic with us. They help us, we help them. Yes. Right, depending on what we feed them, they're still going to produce compounds uh, within a range. If we feed them in a certain way, they'll produce maybe different or more of or less of certain compounds. And then I would guess if the conditions change so much that it's really hostile to them, then that's when you get maybe a change in, uh, you know, a composition because they just can't operate within the new parameters of the system. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's pretty likely. I mean, it, it is an ecosystem. So basically they have adapted to a certain niche in our uh, intestine and, uh, and, if that ecosystem is somehow disrupted, um, then it's uh, it's it's probably where it uh, yeah where things starts to happen, uh, and and you also sometimes get inflammation, and so I think that's very likely. Do you, um, I don't know if this is even a worthwhile question, but when we eat, um, is the food acted upon first by bacteria? You think, or it's first by our cells and our digestion and the bacteria only really get, you know, uh, already digested products. I mean, I know there's bacteria the whole way, Yeah. you know, once the food enters our body, but I guess, do you think there's this back and forth, you know, our body changes the food a bit, then bacteria get in there and work on it. Then we change it more then bacteria get in there. Or do you think they're just kind of like bacteria there along the, uh, the conveyor belt and taking it at certain points and, you know, putting other stuff back on the conveyor belt in a way as it processes. Mm. I mean, as soon as we, as soon as food enter uh, our mouth, our mouth uh, then basically saliva is released and their whole digestion system starts and the food passes down to the stomach. And there, most bacteria that is present in the food is, is killed due to the acidic environment. And then basically the food passes on uh, to the small intestine where uh, you get enzymes, uh, host enzymes released that are mainly responsible for the digestion. Uh, there are uh, evidence coming out that also uh, microbes are important for 
uh, digesting our foods in the small intestine. Um, but basically what we know most of uh, today is what happens in the colon where, um, where the food that wasn't absorbed or the nutrients that wasn't absorbed in the small intestine, uh, these particles end up, ends up in the colon. And here, um, most of their colonic fermentation takes place. And that's probably what we know most about when it comes to these diet microbiota interactions. Um, because they're, they're, the true limitation is to get samples from a small intestine, because that's until now has been quite invasive. There are coming new technologies uh, into the market that's probably going to change that, where you can basically sample from a small intestine. But so far, we, we basically do not know a lot about the contribution of the microbes in the small intestine when it comes to digesting our food. Um, I don't know if that answered all aspects of your question. Well, even the, um, I mean, we're, we're also sampling from the end of the colon you know, with fecal samples, even the, the beginning of the colon, you know, near the appendix and everything, we, we don't, uh, we don't know. True. And then the small intestine, we don't know. And so yeah. how would it, what are some of these techniques you've heard of that we're, we'll be able to sample earlier on? Uh, so, so I must say, I haven't tried these techniques myself yet. Um, but what I know of is that uh, people are working on, or maybe it's already on its way on the market, I don't know, but uh, small capsules that you swallow. And then these capsules can basically um, close and then uh, in, in that way get sampled in, inside the capsule at a certain pH, for example, uh, or at a certain time after swallowing. Uh, so let's say we know that the pH is changing throughout the throughout our gastrointestinal system. So in the small intestine, you'll have a lower pH compared to in their um, proximal colon and the distal colon. And then depending on the pH, you can basically get samples from the different sites. And then these small capsules that are sampling different places in the gut, then you basically collect them when they're uh, excreted and then you can uh, open the small capsules and, and get the sample out of the capsule and then analyze that sample. And I would really cool. love to, to work on that technology. Yeah, it's like a time capsule for your, for your digestive system. Yeah either, yeah, either a time capsule or a oh, that's capsule cool. that's working by pH sensing. So, so returning back to the bacteria, what, what is the role of the, uh, the short-chain fatty acids they produce and the other substances they produce in the body? The role? Yeah, how does our body use the bacterial metabolites to yeah. improve its function? Yeah, so, so the short-chain fatty acids are probably the group of small molecules that has been studied the most. Um, these are both uh, energy source for our uh, cells in the intestine called the enterocytes. So basically, this is fuel for, for our cells. Um, people estimate that 5 to 10% of our energy uh, that we get from our diet is actually due to uh, molecules like the short-chain fatty acids that we use in the gut. Um, short-chain fatty acids also um, bind to different receptors, so you can call kind of functions in the gut, and then activate the immune system uh, the nerve system, um, and uh, this happens both, lo both, both locally in the gut, but also after they are absorbed into the bloodstream. 
uh, and circulated throughout the body. Okay, so so they feed certain types of cells in our body. What what other metabolites are there that uh, have been identified, and are there a lot of other metabolites that have not been identified? Yeah, so so another group of metabolites is. Uh, well, you can say it's not directly uh, microbially produced, but we have these bile acids that are um, released from the bile uh, when we eat. And these bile acids are basically generated in our liver. But the bile acids can be converted to secondary bile acids. And, and this happens when the microbes convert the bile acids. And it turns out that there are uh, small changes on these bile acids into secondary bile acids can actually change their uh, function and their bioactivity. And in that sense, it can have an effect on our host metabolism. So that's another example of a group of molecules. Uh, then we also have um, uh, tryptophan uh, catabolites, so small molecules that are uh, derived from uh, the amino acid tryptophan. And this is a emerging group of metabolites where more and more evidence is suggesting that these microbial tryptophan metabolites could uh, play a role in uh, you know, stimulation of the immune system, but also in the intestinal barrier function in the gut. Um, so that's also a very uh, interesting group of metabolites. But overall, um, if you think about the number of small molecules that we know exist and the number of small molecules that we measure in every single stool sample is very limited actually uh, what we know, know about all these molecules, how they work, how they can communicate with our cells and that's a huge limitation. Well why not do a series of studies where you feed people you know a certain diet, sample them for let's say you know a week and then give them something novel like have them drink uh, you know whiskey one day and then keep sampling them and see how that specifically affects them or have them, uh, you know, if they're, um, if they eat very little meat, you know, if they eat meat, let's say one day a week or something, you know, sample them the whole week and then see what happens when they eat meat that one day, you know, look for uh, specific yeah. stuff first instead of just like overall diets. Yes. But th that's also something uh, that we do. Um, but, but uh, for, so for example, uh, it's not a study I've been involved in, but someone in, in our research group conducted a study where they uh, gave banana uh, basically to uh, people and then measured which molecules can we uh, measure afterwards. And the, the challenge is that despite we think that we, it's very simple that we choose one component, let's say banana, banana is still a complex food with a lot of different chemicals within it. Uh, and, and a lot of these chemicals you'll find in a lot of different fruits and vegetables. So although we try to simplify uh, our diets, uh, you, when, we, when we start to go back and talk about chemicals, it's, it's still very, very complex. And then on top of that, we have their, their, their challenge that people are different and we have different microbes and their different communities produce different molecules. Um, but I definitely agree that there that is we need to do simple stuff and test simple meals or simple ingredients to see what comes out of it. Um, but it's still, uh, yeah, expensive and time-consuming and still pretty complex. Well, what are you hoping to figure out? Let's say you had a limited budget and you could have them eat anything they want and 
test them and have a thousand people and you know what would you what do you want to figure out um so so one project that we're currently about to start is a project where we basically want to understand uh so there's this whole idea that people uh have a personalized response to your to the same diet so that people respond differently although they eat the same component so our idea is basically that if we could understand the environment in the gut then we could probably better predict uh how the diet could affect the microbes or the food component because we think that a factor like pH is is so obvious in all the other ecosystems around the world that a factor like pH or temperature that, that that's of course important for the ecosystem but when people talk about the gut micro microbiota people haven't really considered pH in humans um and we think that that might be a key to understand personal uh, responses basically so that's uh, somewhere where you hope to go have you looked at the pH range of I mean I guess you're looking at their fecal samples or you looking yeah. at their blood pH like what do you look at as a metric so the plan is basically to uh use uh some smart pills that um people uh swallow and then these small pills uh basically record the pH through the whole intestine and then you get information about the whole pH through the whole yeah through the whole system and and of course we're still limited with stool samples but we hope to collect multiple stool samples over several weeks and then to study how the microbes are linked to let's say pH and also to to the diet um we hope to learn something from that you know i realized even um the same person is not the same person over time you know no. like um yeah in your cohort i mean also people are very different too so age gender yes. or you know not gender but age sex their history other medical conditions you know their diet up until that point i mean there's so many different factors i guess yeah you'd have to look at some i don't know what you call it but a factor like ph actually is smart because it would be very hard to look at real specifics you'd have to look at aggregate type values like that because you could have a again a group of 100 people or 1000 people but it's hard to limit the variables it's it seems very hard to limit the confounding variables there's so many true so the the idea is here uh not to have a, a huge cohort but instead to have a lot of samples from the same individual and then try to learn something from one uh i mean one gut at a time basically because of course there's really a lot of factors that can influence this uh, and that's also why people are moving more and more towards these longitudinal studies uh where we can study within an individual what happens and i think that's really key and um, it's also my experience from a recent uh cohort study i did on infants and the the good thing about infants is that it's in my experience more easy to get stool samples from infants and thereby you get a higher resolution basically and as soon as we started to look within one infant it was much more easy for us to really deduce uh correlations between the microbes and the metabolites uh so i think uh, that's what we're going to see in the field that is that more and more people will uh yeah have an emphasis on a lot of samples from one individual yeah this is tough because yeah. everything is uh <clears throat> varies so much 
Well, that's why I was thinking, why not get people that are in extreme conditions, you know? Because what if you, if you try to nail everything down, if you do this, you do longitudinal stuff, but you just see not much happening. It seems like you'd also need a study where someone has, again, a significant condition, because maybe that would give you more of a signal. You know, this person has like <clears throat> IBS for years. You know, this person is, um, again, their autoimmune issues, et cetera, to, to look at the extremes and then maybe hone in on the specifics later. Yeah, but I think the reason why we don't need to go to extremes is that already within a healthy population, uh, you have quite a lot of variation in terms of uh, differences in the microbes and differences in pH. So in my opinion, we don't need to go to the extremes in order to get a, a lot of variation already. Uh, so that's why um, we, we, we better want to focus on people that are relatively healthy uh, so we don't have confounding um, confounders from that's related to their disease or to medicine um, because we already have a lot of variation in the healthy population. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Well, very good. So what, what do you think you'll be able to figure out in the next couple of years? What do you, you know, what's, uh, what's in progress that you're getting close to understanding? So from a personal point of view, I really hope to, um, to be able to work more on uh, small molecules in early life. So in infants, because I think that's extremely interesting because when infants are born, they are more or less uh, colonized by the microbes they get from their mother and from the skin and from the environment. And then you see as soon as breastfeeding stop, uh, and the child uh, or the infant gets uh, a solid diet, then you'll see a, a dramatic change in the gut microbiota. At the same time, you would also expect to see a lot of changes in terms of small molecules in the gut. And I think we can really learn a lot from uh, studying small molecules and study how diet changes the gut microbes in early life. And since... Uh, the immune system and the nerve system is developing in early life. I think it's, it's really crucial that we understand what takes place in the gut uh, in the first year of life. So that's an area I, I really hope to get uh, to work in in the coming years. Well, last thing, also in infants, you have a unique opportunity because they're eating uh, somewhat similar stuff like breastfed infants, you know, what the mother eats would change the composition of the breast milk. I don't know how much, but if they're formula fed, you know, God forbid, then it would be sadly a lot easier to see what they're eating because it would be very consistent, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, their, their diet is more, much more simple as long as they are getting milk. Um, but then, and also when they start eating solid food, often they will, uh, the, the children will get to eat different, small pieces of different things and, and the diet is still very simple. So basically you, the complexity of the diet is going to slowly increase with time. And at the same time, you'll see that the microbe complexity, the microbiotic complexity in the gut is also slowly going to increase with time. And if you start to combine these, this data uh, and then the same times are studying the small molecules in the gut, I think we'll have a much bigger chance in finding um, metabolites that are dependent on the diet and then be able to um, 
figure out which microbes produce these metabolites. And I think that's very exciting and, and an opportunity that is, is uh, worth going for. Well, very good. Well, Henrik, thanks for coming on the podcast. What's the best way for people to, um, you know, to see more of what you're doing, to read papers and look at your uh, website, et cetera? Where should they go? Um, I think they should go to Twitter um, and follow me there. So uh, they can search for my name on Twitter or my tag is H. Roeager. Um, I, th- I guess that's the best way to follow my work. Okay, very good. Well, Henrik, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.